Today on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks, I'm with Abby West, VP Editorial Director at Amistad Books, the most respected and storied African-American imprint in publishing, specializing in works of authors who honor and consecrate the memory of those who fought and continue to fight for freedom. I'm Kevin Perlmutter, Chief Strategist and founder of Limbic Brand Evolution, a brand strategy and neuromarketing consultancy that taps into emotional insight to strengthen connections between brands and people. The limbic system part of our brain supports emotion, motivation, behavior, and memory. And I'm curious how my guests are creating what I call limbic sparks which happen when emotional motivation meets brand desire. I love talking with brand leaders who are turning emotional insight into a competitive advantage to drive business growth for the brands that they serve. Abby, I am so thankful that you are joining me today and let's talk Limbic Sparks. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. I'm excited to talk with you some more. I always love our conversations. I do as well. And how are you doing today? I'm great. It is a soon to be snowy, sleety day, but I'm happily warm and happy inside. Same here. I'm looking out the window, waiting for that snow to start. It's the first of the season and I'm a little excited. So you always bring such a particular energy into our discussions that I look forward to. And I'm curious, what motivates you in your approach to life and career? I think um, the opportunity to grow, which I'm realizing more and more um, insight and connection with people and authenticity. Those are three things that drive so much of what I do. And I realize that every day it's, it's a bigger, bigger part of my motivation. Um, it helps with being impactful in people's lives. And is that similar to the values that you look for and the people who you're closest with? Is there a crossover between how you think about what motivates you and the relationships that you have? Absolutely. I mean, authenticity gets thrown around a lot, but um, it's important and, and key among that is integrity. And that is, I think, a driving factor for me with the people I keep in my life. It doesn't mean that they're exactly the same or even that their approach to it is the same there's a fundamental belief in doing what's right. Brands are an anchor, right? They evoke a shared emotion and meaning. And one of the ways that I really enjoy helping my listeners get to know my guests is by asking them, and I'm going to ask you to describe yourself, but do so only by naming a few brands that paint a picture of what you're all about and why you chose them. This was such an interesting question. I, I really did put it off for a really long time because it felt a little overwhelming. Um, and it's, I think it's one of those clarifying questions that are, who do you want to be and who you are? Mm, okay. <laughs> who are the brands I, I think represent me? And then who are the brands that are really, I think, are, are me? And I, here's a little cross section because I think it's a little of how I want to see myself as well as how I am. Um, I think I go to, it's a crossover with the brands that I use the most too. I realized I was like, there's a interesting cross section. Funny there. coincidence there, huh? Yeah, crazy. <laughs> um, so I'm going to start with Apple because there's a lot to the perception and reality of their innovation in a space and their cool factor. And I'm like, okay, 
I can probably acknowledge that there's a lot of like my self-perception is wanting to identify with Apple, you know, that I am about innovation. Um, you know, there's a cool factors relative. I'm not as cool as my, my, you know, the young people in my life for sure, but there's a cool factor to it. Um, and then there's Delta for around the service angle. And I, it's how I identify my purpose in workspaces is to be of, of service. You know, I, I'll never say that I have no ego, but the things and places I go to, it's not about me. It's about trying to leave things better than I found them, trying to elevate and, and better other people's experiences. So that's what I think of Delta because um, that's been my experience. And Netflix <laughs> for the variety of the content offerings and the ease of use and service and all those things. Um, it all, it just, it connects for me in how I see my, how I try to walk in, in my work world. I love that set of brands. That's, that's a really cool picture that you've just painted. It's interesting. I, I swear it was one of the best questions I've had in a long time. <laughs> well, that's why I gave you a few minutes to think about it. So, <laughs> Uh, Abby, you are a journalist, a digital content strategist, and you've been part of some amazing brands like People and Entertainment Weekly and Essence and Audible, and now Amistad Books, which is part of HarperCollins. As you've moved from reporter to editorial director, what have been some of the key milestones that have propelled you forward? Um, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, because my biggest takeaway, and I'll give the touch points, the, the benchmarks that led me to this was that I care about content. <laughs> I care about storytelling. And I realized that it it was not necessarily married to the media. And that, you know, I grew up wanting, I'm like, I was going to be a reporter. And I had a very clear idea of what being a reporter was. And that was the life I wanted. And I was a newspaper reporter. And I loved it. Um, you know, I started off in a little, you know, first in New York at um, internships at big newspapers, and then at starting my career in little newspapers in Connecticut. And it was everything I wanted. It was boots on the ground. It was a lot of learning. Um, it's the, it was the stuff that I nerd out on. And then when I had my first child, and uh, daily deadlines and babies did not work for me. <laughs> I had two car accidents. The first month I returned to work with my son in the car, both having to do with getting back to the mm -hmm. newsroom or deadline. So I backed off and I was like, okay, got it. I'm gonna take a little pause. And I realized I had such a disconnect of like, who am I if I'm not Abby West, the journalist? Um, I had to think about divorcing myself from what I did in a way and my identity and my you know that so that was a, a an early learning for me and then I switched into magazines and again it was like oh okay you have a skill set you have a curiosity I am very curious I want to share I want to gather information I want to share information I want to tell it compellingly that does not really matter where it's happening so you know when I went to teen people and People Magazine and Entertainment Weekly in essence, going from that understanding and taking the print 
magazine space and going into the digital space, it further emphasized for me that th it's it's more about what I'm bringing to it, right? And what, you know, the connection to an audience, that was the part that was really important to me. So those were some really key things. And when I, and I knew I wanted to switch out of traditional media is when I made my move over to Audible. And again, it was storytelling and, and audience connection, you know, saying creative connection. So what I also realized was that I love creators of all kinds, writers, directors, the creative process is endlessly fascinating to me. Um, and how do we make that accessible to the average person who's not necessarily spending time geeking out on this? All of that, and then having moments where I joined um, nonprofit boards and realizing that I was also pretty mission-driven in what makes me tick. I knew I needed to continue to connect with brands in my workspace that made me feel like I was doing something good. <laughs> For like, you know, it's a very basic way of looking at it, but I felt like what I was doing is not curing cancer and is not brain surgery and is not rocket science, but it is making something better in the world. Can you talk about the editorial focus of Amistad Books? Yeah, I mean, that it, it is meant to up, uplift and spotlight Black authors and Black life. You know, for me, um, what I'm looking to do with it, and I'm working through, I've been in the role for three months now, so it's been a learning experience. It's been my um, come in, pressure test the theories I had coming in, um, understand the whys and hows of things are as they exist right now and refine my messaging going forward. But what, you, what I'm looking to do is have it be even further reflective of the black of black experiences. You know, look not looking at black people as monolithic, um, showing the range of lived experiences while also highlighting the commonalities and expanding that out. And for me, that's really important by expanding out the range of genres that we are leaning into. So there's a lot of narrative nonfiction is, is a, a real touch point for Amistad. It's a 36 year old brand. It is, um, you know, the home of Zora Neale Hurston. And, you know, it has had a major role in, in the culture. And how do we make it feel even more relevant today and tying in um, some genre fiction that are allegorical or, you know, in the, in the, um, in the style and fashion of like an Octavia Butler where it's entertaining, but also really makes you think about things that are relevant to black life. And that's amazing. And when we met a year or so ago, we started having some of these conversations. And when you were at Audible as director of inclusive content, um, before moving to this role at Amistad, um, we just had a lot of these conversations and it was really impactful on me personally. I'd love to know if if you can share with these mo two most recent career choices, can you talk about why they're so personally important to you? You know, I think, and this is funny, I hadn't actually planned on saying it, this, but it's crystallized for me that um, so much of my career as a black woman has been fitting in, right? It's, I came up 
in tradition. I think I've been for the first two newsrooms I was in, I was the only black reporter. Um, possibly the only black person on the editorial team, period. Um in and I I made a career, you know, at Entertainment Weekly for nine years, people um and I had very deliberately not gone to um I stay very tra traditional mainstream media, um, not wanting to be pigeonholed. But a lot of that was the sense that you couldn't necessarily reflect your lived experience, your identity in your workspace and with your work world. And that had started to change for me personally in the last 10, let's say 10 years. Um, that coinciding with my joining those boards, those nonprofit boards that were things that are very important to me. One is Be the Match, the Nas National Marrow Donor Program. I, I I actually had connected with them in my first newspaper job. I'd done a, 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 an article on a donor drive that had highlighted the need for more Black people on the registry because it's we are woefully underrepresented and can't find matches, matches for uh, stem cell transplants the same way that most Caucasian people can. So I knew of that. And then 17 years later, became a donor myself and then joined the board. So that, you know, understanding being part of something that was a life-saving mission, and then also working on another one that was about children, the Children's Law Center of New York, it made me realize that I really wanted to be, you know, A, continuing to work with smart people. That's something I've really had the pleasure of getting to do from all of my career, but doing things that have real world impact and, um, taking that and going into Audible that worked in a way that, you know, had a mission that aligned with my own personal missions. And then going to Amistad that, again, had such a place and presence in Black culture. It all sort of was this perfect storm of being able to live my, my true experience, my authenticity in a way that also translated to the work you once said to me that Amistad is all about supporting authors beyond what's possible elsewhere. What's not possible elsewhere and what kind of support are you providing them? I think an understanding of the possibility. Um, you know, it was created long before most of publishing understood the black market, right? That there was an opportunity to reach black readerships and black audiences. And while that, you know, we don't necessarily live in that particular world anymore, there's, you know, more opportunities for Black authors across the industry. There continues as, you know, for every non-dominant culture, there's expectations that there's certain narratives and there's certain things that can be talked about at any given time. And I think at, with Amistad, you know, the to the point of having representation and um, having people in spaces, they can we can see what's possible. That it's not necessarily that this these are the conversations that are going on in the barbershops or salons or that's ha happening when the families are together. There's cultural nuance that's not necessarily available everywhere. 
and then the commitment to going out to market in the same way. So you touched on this in an earlier response to my questions, uh, you and we've talked a lot about this in the past, concepts like amplifying voices, especially owned voices by people who are sharing lived experiences. And I'd love for you to talk about those concepts for people who are listening um, and and for people who are not familiar with them, like, like I was unfamiliar with those concepts in our earliest conversations. Well, you know, all, all the, the whole conversation around own voices came, has come up well outside of me and through particularly born out of children's um, literature where the, you know, in the last decade, there was more of an understanding of the need for representation for in children's um, literature to to see authors, um, to see both the characters reflect a broader range of identities and the authors writing them to identify with those as well, because there's a different sense of, um, again, authenticity when mm-hmm. it's coming from someone who is writing about another culture, intent maybe pure in all of that, but not capturing the nuances, not capturing the things that are truly resonant within for others in that culture. So that idea that of having own voices, authors, storytellers who identify with the um the identities of the characters that they're writing and the storylines that they're 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 um putting forth into the world, that has thankfully become more important though it's not the end of the story you know that's not it's when I was at audible one of my favorite questions a couple of years ago with you know I had done the um and really geared up our interview strategy over at audible and so was either doing a lot of interviews with authors myself and narrators or scheduling and or producing them and I would often ask you know what they thought of the own voices conversation, um, which has since sort of been moderated because it had become a little too much about the marketing of it and less the purity of the understanding. Um, But one of my favorite answers to that question, because it was, you know, it was like a reverse gatekeeping to a certain point, the pendulum swings many different ways, was one author who had who said, you know, I'm not telling you that you can't write about another culture. I will never say that, you know, there's that's that's the writer gets to express himself, find these things. But if you're going to write about another culture, the onus is on you to get it right. You know, you can't expect not to get uh, a scolding or talking to if you did not do the research, if you did not really get enmeshed and immersed in that culture and to accurately or um, more comprehensively portray it. Because there's a tendency when you're, for many people, when they're writing about another culture to hit some top line notes that are pretty either stereotypical or one note, and you know, it's often more. It's often easier for people to write a three hundred and sixty degree um, and fully rounded com- uh, storyline, and 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 flesh out a character that is closer to what they know. Yeah. So when they don't know that culture, it's a little harder sometimes. Not impossible by any stretch of the imagination, and that's why I love that answer because it didn't 
it didn't gatekeep it, but it gave it accountability. And for decades and decades, stories have been written about cultures by people who did not live those experiences. Exactly. And then the impact of that, I'm assuming, is the nuances, not accurate or deep. Right. And it, it translates. I mean, there's... It, and we're and we're, you know we're clearly talking about people with good intent. I mean, there's plenty to be said about those with bad intent who were creating a narrative that you know did not reflect real life or the real lives that of people we know. But for those with good intent, they still were missing the nuance. They still were not giving um, the space and representation that most of us you know looked for and in the vein, these, these statements seem tried and try, trite now, but you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. If you can't, don't see yourself in a space or see stories that are similar or reflect you, you know, we all have, there's resonance, there's universal resonances, right? We all can connect with stories about love, about struggle, about triumph. These are beyond, um, beyond racial demographic or any other kind of demographic that we all have them. But the things that land have other additional points of connection. And that's what, that's what you're looking for with the storytelling. Yeah. And, and the benefits of that for people in the community that's being represented by those stories must be big. What are some of those societal or community benefits by, by, publishing and promoting these these stories that have not been published before i think it furthers the discourse i think it, it went, for me it means that there's a broader conversation going on that um while we're targeting black audiences you know we're working on on sort of a framing that is you know, black first, but for everyone, like we want everyone in the conversation. We want it to be particularly speaking to like a family conversation to other black people. And I mean this across in a, in a wide intersectional way, you know, that I, it's part of what I want Onstar to do going forward and continue to do and double down on this intersectional approach that, you know, reflects the variety of um black 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 people i know today and black people i don't know <laughs> you know that's the thing I, I i am i was born in trinidad in the west indies i grew up in the bronx i have a very northeast approach and viewpoint to things which is different than someone who a black person from the south or a black person from the west or from or um, someone who was born in Africa or somewhere else and came here. And I want to reflect all of those stories that show the various lived experiences and nuances while reflecting the commonalities of what it means to walk as a Black person in America. Is there a particular piece of content or story that you've been part of creating that you're particularly proud of? Well, so far, <laughs> I just just got here, um, huh. you know. So there's very I, true, very I'm true. I'm very thankful that there, you know, I've inherited an amazing backlist of titles and a pipeline of things, including um, titles coming out this winter of 23, including "Wade in the Water" by Nyani Nkrumah, which is an amazing piece of fiction. Um, there's uh, Nonfiction work from Ben Jealous, former NAACP head, called "Never Forget Our 
people were always free. You know, there's a range of approaches. Wade in the Water is particularly interesting to me because it is by a woman who, though born in Boston, grew up in Ghana and is writing about a Southern story. And so there's there's a fluidity, not to mention that her writing is beautiful. But there's a fluidity to understanding and approach to um, these different takes on Black experiences in America. And I just I keep finding that really interesting. You know, I, again, I came here when I was four and I've been deeply immersed in, in um, history from the Black American experience. And, you know, there's, there's so much more to it than that. And it's, it's influences so many things, but it's not the end of the story. And that's what I find really interesting. Um, but one of my first acquisitions at Amistad has been the um, memoir slash bio um, of John Conyers uh, Jr., the Lions statement, um, a civil rights senator who um, passed away a few years ago. And But this is by his son, John Conyers III, who happens to be a millennial. So having this comp, this son's story about it's called my father's house uh connecting the dots between today and the civil rights generation and showing how relevant so many things are for us all moving forward is is exciting for me that is really incredible i want to turn a bit toward brands for a second so a lot of listeners are interested in in managing and leading brands and for for as long as i could remember and and it keeps growing this idea referred to in many ways sometimes referred to as multicultural marketing um has been growing in importance um and continues to grow in importance but not all brands do it with the same level of understanding and nuance what do you believe are the challenges for brands when they are trying to connect with an audience who they truly don't understand because they haven't invested the time or energy? I mean, that's that's it right there. The fact that they are not thinking of them as people. <laughs> They're thinking of an audience, a consumer, someone to just push things out to rather than connect with. And so when you think about people, a people first, first approach, you're reminded that much like you, you're also a person, <laughs> you in the, in your ad brands and in your teams are all people. And what resonates for you are things that um, are familiar. And what you're going for is the familiar in a true non-exploitive way. So in order to do that, you have to understand the space and take the time and energy. So when you don't, when you don't take that time and energy, it always shows because again, there's a top line note. They're like, oh, there's a dog whistle that's supposed to make me connect here. And it's not, that's all it is. And I'm like, okay, that that whether people think about it um consciously or not, they've written that brand off because of that, that distaste. And are there examples of brands you could think of that are getting it right? And and how do you know that they're doing it right? Brands I would say that do, right? I mean, and I keep right now because I'm in a very social, oh, well, this is a mix of 
social media and like say television um, commercials, I'd say progressive is doing it right because there are nuances to the commercials, but I'm particularly thinking of the ones where they like, don't, you know, to not be your, your, your parents, you know, I forget what the actual phrase is, but they, they are funny, but they also feel familiar. Like, Oh yeah, we're, we're aging and all starting to look or behave like our parents in certain ways. Um, and it's, it's a universal experience and maybe it's targeted. It's connected to me on a middle-class level versus other things. Like there's, it just, it, it found a, a sweet spot. Those they're very funny and true commercials. They're they're speaking about the human experience, and we can laugh at it when we hear it pointed out to us. It's incredible. Right. I mean, and so I, you know, it's one of those. You know, most of us will choose an insurance company based on the rates and all the really pertinent things, but we think of them first, probably. Probably. <laughs> Um, so that's, that's one for sure for me. So in your experience, what, what is the impact of a brand strengthening audience connections in the right way? I think it gives a brand leeway to make mistakes when you're able to have people connect and feel like your brand is tied to their personality or their life or their culture they're more invested in, um, I, I don't want to say con- helping you succeed, but having you remain in their space, in their life. So they're more likely to give you that pass, that extension of grace, that community cheering. And that's that's so valuable. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So why do you think that some brands are still neglecting this power of emotion and emotional insights in their approach to driving business growth? Because it's not as quantifiable as hard and fast numbers, mm. uh, because it requires work in a different kind of way and in long-term investment. It, you can't parachute in. You have to lay groundwork you have to have it's relationship building it's time it's energy and money that some people in some places don't necessarily see the value up front in what do you believe are the best ways to create limbic sparks those moments when emotional motivation meets brand desire taking the seeds of true true experiences um, you know, that's that connection is born again by things that people that are feel are shared experiences and that they they get and they feel seen. It's another one of those phrases that feels like it was overused at a certain point, but your consumer wants to see, feel seen. And that doesn't necessarily translate to the same thing across brands and industries. Um, and it's not a, a touchy feely term. Feel seen can be. I understand the frustration of this particular pain point in the process of getting to our thing. We're fixing that for you because of, you know, making sure that you don't feel that it's, it can be that it can be literally visibly being seen like a brand needs to make sure that their, their consumer, their audience feels more than just like somewhat a transactional interaction. 
as a brand leader, what is it you know now that you wish you knew years ago, perhaps something that others can learn from? That I needed to be and feel like I was walking authentically in order for me to translate that to a brand, you know, that I wasn't packaging myself in the way I was talking about the brand as just the way it needed to go based on someone else's um, thinking or, or um, what I thought the audience wanted and as, you know, from a hands-off approach, the more comfortable I have become with myself in how I connect personally with the brand and seeing the opportunities for others to, the more effective it is. That's amazing. Abby, I have absolutely loved this conversation. I thank you for being here, for sharing your insight and perspective, and for joining me on Let's Talk Limbic Sparks. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. For more, go to limbicsparks.com.